So before I even started the business, I did, don't know if you call it a boot camp, and I'm not going to mention names, and I was told by an American who came over and watched me pitch once. This was when it was just an idea and I had nothing. It was like, this is not going to work, and you're out of the program. He had power to kick me out of the program. And I think, like, not everybody is going to believe in what you're doing. So you just have to trust your gut and keep going. Welcome to Ladyland, a podcast by Lady Brains, where female founders step into our world. It's a world of change makers and innovators. We're talking to women paving their own way and extracting the very best lessons. We're your hosts, Caitlin Judd and Anna McKenzie, co-founders of Lady Brains, a digital and IRL club for ambitious women who are building businesses of the future. So strap in, fellow Lady Brain, and ride with us to Ladyland. Have you ever had an idea but parked it because you felt like you didn't have the right skills or knowledge? This conversation with Holly Cardo is a fantastic example of a non-technical founder who created a multi-million dollar tech business. Her business is Pixie, a platform for online retailers to edit their product shots. And she's managed to build this with a completely virtual team. She's the product of two accelerator programs, both here in Australia and the US, and she now splits her time between Silicon Valley and Melbourne. This chat will make you realise that anything is possible and that the idea you have is absolutely worth pursuing. Like so many of the founders we've spoken to before, her journey began back in her early teens. I remember so clearly being at my friend's house when I was probably about 12 or 13 and she had a Tiger Lily bikini. And I was like, how does this bikini cost so much when it is the exact same shape as my Bonds underwear? So I got to cutting out uh, patterns because I really, really wanted to create bikinis. But of course, being a 13-year-old, I had no idea where to go. And I don't think my parents knew what to do with me. So that didn't really go anywhere. When I, in 2014, I opened my eBay account and I saw Longchamp handbags in David Jones and they were hundreds of dollars. And I couldn't understand why, because in Paris at the outlet, I could get them for about 50 euro, which at the time was about $80. And so I got my friend to send me some handbags and I would sell them on eBay. So that's probably my earliest entrepreneurial thing that I did. Yeah, CJ Hendry had a, an eBay store. I had an eBay store. So did the Greta, Greta had an eBay <laughs> yeah. store as well. But a few people started out their kind of entrepreneurial journey yeah. hustling on eBay, which is interesting. <laughs> it's pretty easy to find things around the house and then put and it flog online. Them. Yeah, yeah <laughs> exactly. It was the original marketplace. Yeah, that's, that's true. true. Mm. So tell us, how did the idea for Pixie come about? So at the time I was living in Orange, which is in regional New South Wales, about three hours from Sydney. And I was building an online marketplace for people in the country to shop um, products because nobody could shop online. Well, you could, but it wasn't a big thing. So I'd go around to the retailers asking if they wanted to be on my marketplace. Some of them said yes. Some of them said no. The ones that said no actually asked me to build their e-commerce site. Mm. So I said that I could do it and I would get their products, put them on WooCommerce or Shopify and then build their e-commerce store. And the biggest problem with all the content they were giving me was that they had terrible product photos and terrible descriptions, except everyone had a smartphone. And I was like, why can't they just take a good photo and it automatically looks amazing and then it's online? So I put up a landing page 
for Pixie and you could essentially just upload your photos. All it was was your name, your email address and a link to your Dropbox files, had no payment or no login and you would send your photos in. I would have a virtual assistant count the photos. Then I would have one graphic designer edit the photos and I would send a PayPal invoice and then get the photos back and email them back to them. And somebody in Queensland submitted 800 photos in our third week. So I was like, this is actually better than my other ideas because I could get customers anywhere. You had the demand straight away. We definitely want to dive into that in a little bit more detail, but I'm really interested to understand from you, because actually we've had quite a few people ask this question, what are the unique challenges that come with building a business in regional Australia? Because you don't necessarily have access to the people, the services, the infrastructure, et cetera, if you're not living in a city. So do you think the fact that you had this idea and you were living in regional Australia affected the way that you went about building the business, i.e. hiring people remotely? Yeah, I mean, in a way, but I think also, you know, five years ago when I started, it wasn't like I knew any different. I had one corporate job in London and then, and I only did first year of university. I did that in France. So it wasn't like I had a large network of people to tap into. Whereas I feel like most people, they go to university or they have a corporate job. So they have that network to tap into, even if you're in regional Australia. I do think I got into an accelerator program when I was living in regional Australia. Um, New South Wales. And so then I was part of a startup community in Sydney and I would commute back and forth um, between the two. I think that I initially didn't see it as a business. I saw it as like, I'm just going to do, I did my consulting, freelancing, building e-commerce stores, running social media um, campaigns for retailers. And then for Pixie, it was essentially like a side project or a side business. And I realized like I didn't know how to build a payment gateway Mm. on my site. So I would hire one developer to do that. And I didn't know how to build a login or like have any dashboard for the customer to log in and get their orders. So then I got another developer to do that. So I kind of became a little bit addicted to hiring people online because it wasn't like I needed to output a lot of money and hire someone full-time. It was just a sort of project piece work. So what point did you realize that this could be a full-time gig for you? So I got into Moody, which is Telstra's accelerator program. And I realized, so I still did a bit of uh, side work just because it would pay the bills. So building those e-commerce stores and probably two, three months in the program, I realized I needed to stop that because it was just a distraction. Mm. Um, I did get a bit of money from them. So that obviously helped because you have customers, but it's never going to pay as much as you need. Um, So that was sort of when I probably three months in, I did it full time. Did you feel like you had to have a bit of a mental shift from side hustle to full time, like treating it as a full time business versus something that you were doing on the side that wasn't actually delivering you money to live off? Like, was there a mental shift for you when you made that choice? Yeah, definitely. But I think being being part of the accelerator program helped mm. that because you basically have someone like Telstra back you and say, mm. well, we believe in this. So it wasn't just a side thing for me. It was like, now you have an investor who mm. is taking you seriously. Mm. Can you tell us a little bit about the accelerator program? I'm so interested to hear about how you kind of came across that opportunity and how they structured the program and what you got out of it. Yeah, so I had a friend who was about to be a mentor for the program and he suggested that I should be part of it. And so I applied, not really thinking much of it at the time they gave us $40,000 and I made it and got in. I think for me, it was good because 
I mean, five years in 2014, the startup ecosystem in Australia wasn't really there. So I thought it was quite good because it taught me how to pitch. It taught me like bigger thinking. It taught me like, what is a mentor and advisor? I mean, obviously you know what it is, but how do you structure those meetings? And, you know, how do you get up in front of a room full of people and present your idea? So that was really helpful and building the network. Also, they took us to San Francisco midway through the program. And that really opened my eyes to Silicon Valley and San Francisco and tech companies and like bigger thinking. So I think the program was good for me for that. Um, and also the network. Like the, I, mm. as I mentioned, I only have one corporate job, did one year of university. So I needed that network. Mm. And that's where you kind of fell in love with Silicon Valley and you've spent yes. the last kind of five years um, going back and forth between, you know, Melbourne and Sydney and uh, Silicon Valley. You also joined another venture firm um, based out of Silicon Valley called 500 Startups. Yes. Can you tell us about that experience um, and how did that differ to the one in Australia? Yeah, so when Moody finished, I went over for a month because I loved it when they took us for a week. So I wanted to see what it was all about. And then I realized I wanted to be there more. So I came back, got a B1 visa. And then I went back to San Francisco around November and I was there for three months. And everyone kind of said like, well, I was a solo non-technical female founder with a remote team. And five years ago, this was unheard of that you would have a remote team. No one took you seriously. And people would ask, did you work at Google or Facebook? Did you go to Stanford or Harvard? And none of those applied to me. And so I felt that I needed either you do Y Combinator, which is a very famous accelerated program in Silicon Valley or 500 Startups. I did get an interview to Y Combinator, but didn't get in. And then I did get into 500 Startups. And for me, it was not that I needed to do another accelerated program. I needed the network in the Valley and I needed it fast because you need to tick one of those boxes. I think the boxes are slightly blurred now, more circles in San Francisco, like investors are a lot better at like investing in Australian companies. Like we have Atlassian, we have Canva mm -hmm. and people can see Culture Amp, like all these companies that are coming out of Australia, investors are now more open to it. But for me, the accelerator program was purely to gain a network and meet as many people as quickly as possible. And also people would take your meeting more so if you had one of those, you know, tick boxes on their, from their list. Um, in terms of the program, I think it was really a global program. There were teams from all over the world. You would meet people who were in Silicon Valley and had been there for a long time. So they knew the thinking. Although, you know, I was the first batch out of, in Moody, out of all the companies and the one 500 startups, they would have two people on your team. So a point of contact and a growth contact. And they were dedicated to helping you. Like point of contact would be someone you could ask any business question, like I need a connection to this person or I need, how do I do this, deal with this contract or how do I deal with this founder? And then you would have a growth person who was like, what can you do in your business this week? What tests can we run to mm. accelerate your business, which was really interesting because I guess they didn't do that at Moody. They've definitely like changed it. So you do have point of contact. And then I think the other thing is they were really into the growth and like how fast can you grow and then pitch your business at the end of the program. But for me, during the program, I realized I didn't want to fundraise. So we just, I just used that for the network. And so what was your reasoning behind wanting to expand your network in Silicon Valley if you weren't looking for an investor there? So I didn't realize they want to necessarily like not look for investors. I think for me is that if you're building a software company, 
where do all the people in software live? If you want to be an actor, where do you go? You go to LA. And so it's like, you need to be where the best people in the world are for your industry. And so I realized that even though I don't necessarily want to build out a team in Silicon Valley, um, it was the best place to build a company and I could learn as fast as possible. And because I hadn't been to university, I actually treat this. It's like going to university. It's like you're learning every single day from like the best people who have mm. done it. And what's the payoff been? What have you, what are some of the connections that you've made um, that are kind of, you know, you're reaping the rewards today? I think connections are everything. And I mean, as small as like this week, we're featured on the Shopify app store on the staff picks. And like, I would have never met the connections. We were picked by a staff member who happens to be in San Francisco. And if I was staying in Australia, and I'm not saying you can't build a company out of Australia, but if you're, at the end of the day, people like to do business with people and you don't have to be in San Francisco all the time. But if you can have those one-on-one in-person meetings, then people remember you and they do want to help you as a person. Um, So I think, you know, there's our partnerships with different e-commerce platforms. There is marketing partnerships. There's the learning from product people. There's the hiring. I mean, I think everything, every meeting you have builds up. It might not be, you might not get the return straight away, but two years down the track, you know, that company might want to buy you. Like you might meet the head of product or VP of product at a certain company. And if they know who you are and what you're doing, if they go to acquire a company because they don't want to spend their time building and growing something themselves, they're just like, yep, we know this company, we're going to buy them. Mm. And that's what happens in San Francisco so much more than in Australia. It's all about visibility, isn't it? And kind of breadcrumbing those relationships, being in the in front of mind, I guess, in the industry. Definitely. That you're sort of playing in. Um, you've mentioned a couple of things that you experienced in both the accelerator programs, and that is being able to pitch your idea or pitch your business. What are some of the best lessons that you learned around pitching your business, not necessarily to investors only, but in general? So I think it is really about storytelling. I wouldn't say I'm the best at it, especially because I don't pitch that often now. I think though you are storytelling to your customers or investors or even potential employees that might want to join your team. I always tell people, stop focusing on the details. Like just give the high level, big vision, get people excited, create, this is very Silicon Valley thing, but like create that FOMO that people want to know more because they're not going, you're going to get up on stage and you're going to tell them all these statistics and details. If they're not in your industry, there's so much detail, it just goes over their head and they're not that interested. They're like, that's too much information. Whereas if you are talking to someone who doesn't understand your business or the industry and you give them like, this is where the industry is, this is where it's going and this is why we need to get on this bandwagon or this train right now, a rocket ship, to get from A to B, then you want them to get excited so they want to join you and help you get from A to B. The problem is that if you give them all these details, they're just like totally lost me at the Mm. beginning and then they're looking on their phone and then they're doing something else and it just goes over their head. So I think like you just need to keep it simple but keep the big story in mind to get them excited. Yeah, Mm. yeah, great Mm. advice. And then for anyone looking to get into an accelerator program, what do founders need to look out for? What do they need to be thinking about? To get into an accelerator program, I think that's really important to, again, come up with your pitch. Um, Think about what you want to get out of the accelerator program. Like some people do need the money. Some people do need the network. When you get into the accelerator program, there's a lot 
of information and you're going to be told by so many mentors what to do. So I think before you even apply, you want to make sure that like you can get what you want out of the accelerator program. I think you also need to focus on some traction because at the end of the day, it is so easy now to build a landing page and get signups. Like there's no excuse not to build a basic product and show some sort of traction. And you are competing with like, I know 500 startups most of the time, unless you're building something really, really difficult, you need to have $10,000 in recurring revenue to get in just because there are people around the world who are applying. So I would look at the traction and look at the team. Like at the end of the day, accelerator programs are backing people. So even if it's just two people, one person, show that you are surrounded by a team of advisors or mentors who you can go to to ask for specific advice. You said something just then, which I would love to dive into. (laughs) You said it's so easy to build a landing page and gain traction these days. How do you, how do you do that? How did you gain traction in the early days? Okay. So for our product in particular, and I think it goes for any B2B product is think about when your customers need you the most. So for us, it was how do we help people who are going to trade fairs prepare their catalog? So it wasn't just about their e-commerce store. It was like, they need to prepare their catalog. Okay, let's email them three months out before the trade fair to ask them if they need help with their images. And so we, I literally had a virtual assistant who would help me email businesses. And if you are B2B, you are allowed to email businesses. You can't email consumers, but you can email businesses. And so I think you can literally from a list of 100 people, see how many people are interested, how many people hit your page. I mean, Paul Graham says, do things that don't scale. And you need to focus on like doing those small things bit by bit to see if you can get some traction. I listened to a really good podcast episode with the founder of General Assembly. Mm -hmm. And he said that the first time you do anything, it should be handmade. And I thought that was really interesting. It's like, just get scrappy and it can be manual and not automated. You just need to put it out there. Exactly. Yeah. 100%. And that's why I think like it is, I mean, it's not, nothing's easy, but it is possible. I mean, you can build Facebook groups now to get Mm. some traction. You can build a newsletter list. You could go and ask if you can do some co-branding or co-marketing with somebody else. Um, But I do think, yeah, you can do things that don't scale and start by just emailing businesses. Treat yourself nearly as an agency or a consulting firm. I know some very successful businesses have actually had a services business on the side. They ultimately want to make some software, but they have a services business on the side and then they use that to ask customers questions and just, I guess, get revenue in the door because they're doing a service which ultimately is forming their product. Well, it's interesting. You're one of the first B2B founders that we've actually interviewed. So this is new for us, but what other marketing um, campaigns have worked? You know, you obviously just mentioned going after the businesses right before like a big campaign that you recognize that, that you know, they're trying to achieve. What, what else have you done? We haven't done paid ads. We're about to start. Um, it's not something we've really focused on. We've done a lot of content marketing. We focus on doing eBooks, guides, um, blogs. So it is really about being, and you, at the beginning, it seems really boring. No one's reading it. It's not good for you. But like a couple of years in, you start to get the SEO advantage. Like it's, it builds your SEO and it's your advantage because you have that and your competitors don't. And also people see you, for example, we wrote a hundred page photography guide for Shopify. Yes. But we would have never been able to do that if we didn't have our own content because Shopify would be like, who are you? 
why should you write this guide? Whereas some of our blog posts are like the top performing product photography blog posts on Google. And so we could show them what we were capable of. So then you can do content marketing on your site. You can do um, guest blog posts on other sites. And then also you can ask other blogs to guest post on your site and then they will share it with their social. So we do a lot of content and then we also have done, I guess, had channel partners. So we build app integrations directly with e-commerce platforms and that's been very successful for us. So I think for a B2B software company is that you want to look at like, how does your product work with other software? Because everyone these days, all businesses want to use software that talks to each other. Mm-hmm. And so you should really, there are app marketplaces. So Shopify have an app marketplace. So does Big Commerce. WooCommerce has their plugins. Salesforce have one. Intercom now has one. I mean, all these companies are now building their own app marketplaces. And if your product can work or integrate with one of those platforms, it can be really good traction. And as I was mentioning before that we got featured on Shopify this week, our installs are up four times. Oh, wow. wow. Yeah. Yeah. So there are probably our three main channels is content, sales outreach and also the integrations. Yeah, we're, we're going through the process of creating content and, you know, I think there's just so much that can you can create. How do you determine the, the your content pillars and what's the right thing to, to give your customers? Ah, that's a good question. I don't think we necessarily, like some content, you can't always measure the ROI on it. Like some of it is brand. Um, you know, branding and awareness, and then some is going to create sales. Like I've had some customers say, oh, we're using you because we saw your content with Shopify. So we believe you. And like, how would you ever track that? Like you, if they haven't clicked on that guide through to our site, they might just remember our brand later on. I think, I mean, if we're, when we're really good, you really just want to take content and repurpose it in multiple formats. Um, Sweat the asset. Yeah. Exactly. Good way of putting it. <laughs> Caitlin says that to me all the time. She's like, we've got so much content for our podcast. We need to sweat the asset. I'm like, <laughs> great. <laughs> but true. So true. true. I, but I think it's like setting up a process and being diligent yeah. to stick to it. And no matter if like you're doing it yourself or you have a virtual assistant or somebody else doing it for you, it's like you've just got to keep going. Like I preach all this and we're not perfect at it. So, um, but I do feel like Things like creating slide shares that go onto SlideShare, mm-hmm. answering questions on Quora, like take your blog post, take out snippets and answer questions on Quora and link it back to your blog. Yes. Go onto Facebook groups, search the questions or reverse engineer it. Find a good question that everybody's engaging with, create a blog. This is what I tell people all the time. Create a blog post and then link back to it and say, Funny that you asked that. Here's a blog post that we wrote about this exact answer. Yeah, I, I answered this, you know, two weeks ago. Exactly. Go check it out. But it's, yeah. it's fine. Like, no, totally. And it works. Or like forums, like for B2B, Shopify have great mm. Shopify forums. So go in there and look at the common questions, answer them, or create a blog post and gather all the common questions and be like, top 10 questions from the Shopify forum and put them on a blog because... If people are searching for them on Shopify forums, they're also searching for them in Google. That's a really good tip, actually. Great tip. Great tip. Who does that in your team? Do you have a virtual assistant whose job it is to kind of go out and look at the forums and and figure out what content will resonate? Sometimes I do have a project manager. Um, I do spend a lot of time on product and content. Sometimes I look 
myself on the forums because it sparks ideas, not just for content, but also for product, the types of product and features we're going to build. Um, otherwise, yes, we have like a marketing assistant who will go through, go through on the Facebook groups. There are There is a Shopify specific entrepreneurs Facebook group with over 100,000 members. Um, go through Quora, go through Reddit, go through all of these platforms and basically have a spreadsheet of everything we're going to do. We also have a Trello board of all of our blogs. Um, I Like one column is just ideas. So anyone in the team can brain dump ideas, you know, common questions that customers are asking, common questions that we get, that we see on the Facebook groups, etc. So I want to kind of dive in a little bit and talk about your remote team because I think that's so interesting. Definitely the first person we've spoken to that has a fully remote team. Yes. Can you tell us about how you've gone about building your business with people from all around the world? Yeah, so it definitely wasn't conscious at the beginning. I hired, I as I mentioned, when I was building certain things that I couldn't do, I would use Odesk at the time. It's now called Upwork, Odesk and Elance merged. And I would hire one person to do one task and then go from there and hire another person. And it really helped as a bootstrap company or a company with limited funding to just hire someone on a project base. I think what was really important that I didn't do for the first six months was a couple of things. Number one, document. I kept hiring someone and then I would, they would leave or I would get another person who was a similar role. So one would do blogging and one would do social media and I'd have to tell them half the same things again, like what Pixie is about, who's it for, who's our core customer. So document, document. That's like one thing I, like one piece of advice I give. And you can use something like Google Sites. So if you go sites.google.com, you can put a password, you can build a free website. So it's just like we use it as a wiki. So you have your onboarding. We have like a welcome letter from me, what we're about, what our vision, mission and values are. And that was the other thing. We didn't really have any values. I had it subconsciously in my head and I would tell everyone like, we're like a family and we were the Pixie family. And the reason for that was we had people all around the world and one the thing that everyone can relate to is like, how do you treat your family? Treat everyone with respect no matter where you come from. So I put that all down on paper or on, you know, website. Um, so everyone who was coming on board, I didn't have to reteach them. It was like, here's the onboarding material. I think my advice is to hire someone for one project. And then also what you want to do is make sure that they're on board with the vision, mission and values. Because at the end of the day, you you think you're hiring for just a project base, but you actually want to treat everyone as if they're an employee in your workplace. Otherwise, they'll just do the task and they'll leave. They won't be on mm. board for long term. So that's what we really focused on. And then I would have regular meetings with everyone so they feel inclusive. And you also need to make sure that you can do the task yourself. I think it's like the re- one of the reasons why we haven't done ads is because I don't really know how to do ads. So do we spend thousands of dollars a month? And I don't, unless you can afford like an expert, 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 where you're really going to delegate the task and then leave to them and you trust them 100%, there's nothing worse than as a like starting out, not having a lot of budget, you dedicate a lot of budget and it doesn't work. You will know your business the best. So if you can just start to delegate the tasks that you, you are already doing and you already have a set process for, I suggest starting with those and then expanding. So that's kind of what we did. That's why it's worked so well. 
And so how do you learn how to do those tasks? Do you hire coaches or, you know, have you learned how to run ads? Well, I haven't, but <laughs> yet you're going yet, to, but no, I think I, I think I'm better at delegating and selecting the right people. And the other thing is we have more budget now. Great. So we hire someone who is good at ads, not just a virtual assistant who can help with that. Yeah. Whereas when you're starting out, say for example, social media, it's nothing worse than being like, run our social media. And like, you've never done social media before. You don't know what works. Whereas if you can give them a set Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, camp, like schedule and what they need to do and what platforms and some templates, whether that's Canva or, you know, write like these are the words you're going to use or similar and this is how you're going to set it out, then it can just go so wrong and it might not work. So it's best to delegate something when you kind of know what's working. Mm. Mm. So you obviously, you don't have the luxury to sit down with these people face to face and get to know them. What are some of the tips? What are some of your tips to hire the best people for the job? Well, I think video is pretty good <laughs> in terms of face-to-face. I mean, it's really about an interview process and setting up a test and a task that you get them to do for two weeks. So it might be, I mean, let's go back to the like what I would do if I was hiring someone today is I would have, you know, the job application. I would have them apply. Then I would give, say there's, out of 10 applicants or 20 applicants, you get two or three of them a test. And then um, you would pick one or two and put them on a two-week trial. And you would tell them it's a two-week trial. And you're going to work with the team and you're going to work on projects and see how it goes. Um, I think there's only one way that you know if you're working with good people is actually working with them. There's things like you they won't be able to tell if, um, you know, they won't be able to cope with the pressure but they won't know that how like stressful it could be in a startup until they start working with you. So I think it depends on the role. Um, also, you, like you need to f- focus on what sort of questions you're going to ask them to see how they handle it. And I think also coming back to the values, like if they have similar values and like want to learn and want to work hard and want to try something different, then that works with the startup culture. But if they want something that's like being told what to do every day, especially with remote and they want like not to think outside the box, then it's not going to work because you're not there. You're not face-to-face like checking if they're coming in at 9am to an office on Monday morning. They need to be self-motivated and get up and do the work when they need to do it. It sounds like a lot of the people that you hire virtually are executional. Have you or are you planning on hiring kind of more senior strategic people within your business virtually? Yes, definitely. I, though I haven't found those people through a platform like Upwork. Mm. They've come through recommendations or connections or LinkedIn or AngelList. So I think for the people who, who are, I guess, more senior, it's come through the recommendation because I know I can trust them. It's very hard to spend $200 an hour or $500 an hour, whatever you're doing for an advisor or senior person when you're just finding them off a platform and mm. had no recommendation. So for the last uh, six years, I've been working remotely or in remote teams um, around the world. And I know one of the biggest challenges is to create a really positive work environment, especially when you can be isolated and you might not see someone or talk to someone for a few days. Um, How do you create a positive work environment at Pixie? I try and have that personal relationship with them, especially at the beginning, because if you can create the positive work environment with a few key people, 
the people that they speak to, they will create the same environment. I think it's also about really being open um, with your employees or your contractors and saying like, here's my WhatsApp number. You can call me whenever you want. Like if it's Saturday, call me. Like if you want to talk about work stuff or not talk about work stuff, like I'm here, a lot of people won't call you if it's not a scheduled call. Um, And I think it's really important to do that because you're not just interested in their work life, you're also interested in their personal life. When you were speaking about the Accelerator program, you said that they taught you how to structure mentorships. And that's one of the questions that we get a lot from people is, how do I find a mentor and how do I structure the mentorship in a formal way? You're also or have been a mentor at Startmate, which is one of Australia's Accelerator programs. What are some of the pieces of advice that you would give people looking to structure a mentorship relationship? you're not going to have one mentor who can do everything. So we were going through pricing changes and I needed an advisor who really understood SaaS business pricing models and what to do. And you may only have that mentor for a period of time. I still, I mean, I do have mentors, but I use mentors for like, I speak to different people for different things. I think if you are finding a mentor for the very first time is look, ask them three questions that like burning questions. There's nothing worse than somebody coming to you and be like, oh, can I, can I pick your brain Mm. for an hour? And they're not prepared. So be prepared, have two or three questions because at the end of the day, the mentor also has to pick you. You pick the mentor, mentor picks you, like they have limited time too. So if you can have two or three questions that are specific to that mentor, then they're more likely to be interested in your business. So that's how I would start out because I've had a lot of people who turn up to a mentor call and they're like, I don't know what I'm doing here. Or like, can you tell me, can you pitch to me what what you do? I'm like, you, sh- you should really prepare for your call. Like I have, mm. I mean, we all have limited time and I think it's just nobody has taught them how to do it. So I think being prepared for the call, having two or three questions because the mentor has to be interested in you. And mm. also the other thing is looking through their LinkedIn. So before say, before the end of the call saying, oh, can you just introduce me to anyone you think I should speak to? It's like if you have some some specific people, it's like they've done their research, the mentor is going to be more interested. It's a good piece of advice. So I got a call with the CEO of MailChimp because I literally had signed up to his newsletter. I wanted some advice from him. He'd never sent a newsletter ever. So I said, Hi, Ben, signed up for your newsletter. And I think I sent it to him on LinkedIn. I'll have to double check. I've never received an email from you. And I'm really curious how you get from 10,000 users to a million users. He's like, okay, let's have a call. And it's because I asked him for one, I acknowledged something that like he hasn't done. So he knew that it was right. Like I did my research. And then I asked him for one very specific piece of advice. So he had no, it wasn't like, can I pick your brain? for 20 minutes. It was like, how do you get from this point to this point? I think the other thing is that don't ask a question you can find on Google. Mm. Mm. How'd you get started with your business? Like that, like you can find that on Google. So don't, again, it goes back to wasting their time. But I think in terms of culturally in America, so especially in San Francisco, people will take meetings with you. I don't know if it's about being direct, but people will take meetings if you are specific because they either, you're going to fail as a company and they will b- want to acquire your talent, especially if you're engineering talent, 
or they'll want to work with you. So for example, imagine if Facebook never said, no, no, we're not going to talk to you, Instagram. You're too small. Then somebody else would have come along and bought Instagram. But the fact that they built the relationship really early on, well, I mean, any company in the Valley is that they will have first opportunity to buy them. And that goes for like anything you're building in San Francisco mm-hmm. is that at the end of the day, all these companies are acquiring up these smaller businesses because A, they're scared you're going to overtake them, but, or B, they need your technology and your team. And so if they don't help you or don't work with you early on, then they might not have an opportunity. If they shut you out at the beginning as a founder, why would you give them the opportunity to buy you? And I think in San Francisco or in America, investors never say no because then that's the door closing. They just say not right now. And that's the same with partnerships or working with you. Whereas I think in Australia, unfortunately, right now we haven't had enough companies who have been bought or enough companies that have grown to a large scale that um, old corporations feel threatened by it. But when that starts happening, they'll realize that they need to work closely yeah. With, mm. yeah. with the startups. How much of your time do you think is spent on that kind of like business development relationship building stuff? Because it takes time to... A lot. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, I think my strong point is partnerships. Mm-hmm. Um, I would like to do that full time because at the end of the day, it's amazing. If you have a co-founder, I always say like one person should always just be out there networking and talking. Mm. Um, it seems like it doesn't do, move much, but like you'll see it... Um, your business grow or you'll open up doors and opportunities. Like maybe it's taken me five years, but maybe it would have taken two if I had a co-founder. Mm. Mm. It is interesting. I mean, we have had so many coffees with people, you know, here in the US and um, a few of those coffees or a few of those meetings have now provided a bit of return six months, eight months later. And you just never know. Yeah. You just never know where one coffee will lead. And so, you know, it's always worthwhile. I Definitely. Think. Yeah. What have been some of your most successful partnerships? Definitely Shopify by far. I mean, Shopify went public in 2016 and they are growing like a rocket ship and being able to build product on top of their platform and work with the content team to do the content marketing. It's been fantastic for our brand. I mean, they're a multi-billion dollar company. We're a small startup, but to have that and that backing, I guess, in terms of a partnership with Shopify has really helped us give us credibility. Mm. And that came about through somebody who saw you at the Accelerator program or you met through the Accelerator program. Is that right? No. So the Shopify thing came about, I guess, being one of the first on the platform to build an app integration and then connecting with the content team to be able to do a content um, partnership and then being based in the Bay Area and meeting their, the Shopify team going to, I mean, it, again, it's like, it, it's Snowball. all of these things. You can't just do one. It's not going to work like that. You need to do multiple. So asking to speak at one of their meetups, asking to, you know, be part of any event that they have, going to their conferences, etc. So it was something that you kind of worked towards for a long period of time. 100% and it hasn't finished. Like we still have a lot to do. Um, I want to talk about rejection and challenges. Is there a time that you were, you know, I mean, you were rejected, you were told, no, I don't like that idea. And how did you bounce back from that kind of rejection? Yeah. So before I even started the business, I did sort of like a don't know if you call it a boot camp and I'm not going to mention names, but I did something and I was told 
by an American who came over and watched me pitch once. This was when it was just an idea and I had nothing. He was like, this is not going to work and you're out of the program. He had power to kick me out of the program. And I think like you need to trust your gut and keep working and you're going to have a lot of people who say no. A great example is this week, a Chrome extension called Honey was purchased for $4 billion. They started four years ago and people said, no, it's just a Chrome extension. PayPal bought them for $4 billion. $4 billion. Yes. And so you are not going to have, I mean, Airbnb took like two years to raise a seed round. You're just not, not everybody is going to believe in what you're doing. So you just have to trust your gut and keep going and not be offended. I think that's the other thing. Australians were really offended and I am too, like, But at the same time, does it matter? Like not everybody also who you pitch to is in your industry. They might Mm -hmm. be an investor, but they don't understand. And that's actually like when it happens the most is female, maybe not our business because it's B2B software, but I know that there's a lot of females who are building companies and investors don't know because they're males. They have to go home to their partners or their wives and say, is this actually a problem? Because they don't experience our problems. So I think you just have to trust your gut and keep going and just not be so offended. I mean, that's probably why 2% of VC funding globally goes to women, right? Because there aren't a lot of female investors at that level who are at the decision-making table, which is a problem in itself. Definitely. Yep. What does the long-term picture look like for you and for Pixie? Where are you wanting to take it? I would like to build an AI employee that runs your e-commerce store. It's a bit crazy. Um, It's a little like, what does that actually look like? Uh, I don't have the full answer for you, but I don't believe that we should be building software and another dashboard for people to log in and do something uh, for their business. I just think software should work for you. And we really proved out the point. We have a second Shopify app called the Photo Resize app. And all it does is analyze your site, tell you every single image that you need to fix and you click one button. Would you like to fix these images? Yes or no? And you press yes. Like that's way an app or software should be. You shouldn't have to go through and select which images you want to fix and then tell us which ones the software should fix and how you want it fixed. Our software should know. And so we are working on building more and more software that analyzes and monitors your site, tells you everything that's wrong with it. But instead of you having to hire the resources, pay for people to be on, I mean, that's the biggest problem with small businesses. You can say, run Facebook ads, do social media campaigns, upload more product, add more photos. Oh, you need to edit all your photos. Oh, you need to write a better product description. But do you have time and all the people to hire? And then most businesses, they are retailers. They are not digital marketers. So we are working on software that does that for businesses. So cool. How do you even know where to start with something like that? If you're not a non-technical founder, I assume that you didn't have much deep knowledge about artificial intelligence. Um, so how do you even tackle something like that when you have that idea and you, you know, have that idea? Definitely need to hire the right people. Mm. Um, I have some, I definitely don't know how to build any AI or machine learning. I wish I could, uh, but hire the right people. And that's why we've brought on our part-time CTO who can guide us through the product vision um, in terms of a tech of the technical side. I think the other thing is I do, I am really passionate about software. I love software. I love what it does. And even uh, a couple of weeks ago, I went to a great conference in San Francisco. So you're learning from the best. So surround yourself with people who have done it. 
um, that's really important, which again, whether they're friends, like founder friends or mentors or actually people on your team, employees, that's what you need to do to build any company. Like you're not going to know how to do every single bit. So surround yourself with the right people. Aside from AI, what other trends are you seeing? Oh, that's interesting. I haven't really thought about that. I mean, definitely, I think in terms of commerce, it's uh, VR and AR images. Um, Shopify put a large focus on that. I think uh, more brands are creating uh, AR content, so augmented reality, being able to shop by holding your phone up um, and seeing how something fits in a room or how a, you know, pram or stroller fit through a doorway. Mm. Um one of the other trends that I'm seeing is no-code software. So soon I think like anyone who's non-technical will really be able to build a software site. Uh, I do have a friend who is looking into building some software for his business and we are really trying to work on solutions, finding something that's existing or already out there or another platform to build on top of it because there are people who are building multi-million if not billion-dollar businesses on top of software like Salesforce platform. Um, they have a platform called Force. Um, so I think it would be interesting to see where it goes over time, like non-technical people being able to build technical companies. So at Lady Brains, we believe that you can't be successful um, on your own. It you know it takes a team and it takes a village. Um, can you share with us just one person that's had a significant impact on your career? One is really hard. I think I'm just not one person to re- like. I'm not one to rely on one person. I think. It- it's really about having different people in your life for different things. Um, and it might be like one team member who's been really good who, I mean, I do speak to my project manager literally every day for the last three years. And then it might be a mentor who's been able to open doors or, you know, I have an advisor called Carl Hartman and he was the founder of a shipping software company. And he, I sat in his office for two and a half years in San Francisco and he was just such a good contact, but he'd also been through, he's raised $60 million and had been through everything I had been through. And he was only a few years older than me. Um, And then you have, I mean, you have your family. So I guess for me, it's like, different people like one on my team one advisor and of course my family it's the village it is the village Mm. guys we hope you enjoyed this chat with holly we took a couple of things from it that we're going to implement immediately firstly we loved how she was super specific in her ask to the founder of mailchimp she clearly did her research and identified something really crystal clear that he could help her with being specific like that not only shows your thoughtfulness but it also means you'll actually get some advice that you can use and apply right away We also loved her advice that if you have a co-founder, one person should be out and about networking. Nine times out of 10, this is where the business opportunities come from. We keep on hearing it. It's who you know, not what you know. And finally, try and find other sources of income while you're in the early stages of building your business. Uh, This could be through consulting like Holly or even dropping down to part-time if you're currently in a full-time role. Ladyland is hosted by Anna McKenzie and Caitlin Judd. The producer is Brooke Carrigan. Audio production by Matt Nikolic.